question. And the question is this. What is the dollar value of a human life? And even as I say that, I reckon some of you are probably thinking, actually, well, human life is, is priceless. We don't, I, don't, I don't put a value on human life. And you know what? I'd, I'd, I'd be tending to agree with you there. But do you know that there are some experts around the world who have been doing some research into this very question, what is the dollar value of human life? And I want to share with you some of their findings this morning. The US Nuclear Commission assigned a value of just $3 million to the loss of a human life. Then there was the Environmental Protection Agency, and they put the value of human life at $9 million, a lot higher. Then there was the Transport Department, who valued it at $9.4 million. But scientists, on the other hand, have done it differently. They've approached this from a different angle and have said, what we'll do is we'll add up the value of all of your body parts and organs. And they've added it all up, and they've got to a value of at least $6 million. So there you have it. According to the experts, at least, the dollar value of human life is somewhere between 6 and $9 million. How does that make you feel? Does that make you feel good about yourself? Worth six to nine million dollars? I'm not sure. What I want to ask you this morning is, as a Christian, what value do you put on human life? Do we value human life the same? Or do we value humans different depending on who they are and where they come from? Or if I was to ask, you know, if you saw a new couple coming into this church this morning and they were well-dressed, you know, they're good social standing. They look like they were pretty wealthy people. I mean, they look like they belong to this church. Would you think any different of them as opposed to someone who walked in and you think they're probably doing it tough? Maybe they're even homeless. You know, it's a tough question, but would you treat them any differently? I think it's a difficult question. You know what? I'm so glad that I've had the great privilege of looking at this parable in preparation for this sermon. Because what this parable is teaching me is that God does not value people the same way that we tend to value people. And if we want to understand how God values people, we need to change our thinking. And I believe that's what this parable is going to teach us, that God does not value people the way that we do. Do you mind if I just go ahead and pray? And then we'll ask for God's empowerment by His Spirit as we look at this word this morning. Father, I thank you for this word. It is a difficult text, but it is a powerful text. And Lord, I pray that your spirit will enable me to speak with integrity and that we would all be enlightened by your spirit this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as we look at this parable, we see that the, it begins with these words. It says, for the kingdom of heaven is like. And before we go any further into this parable, you know what this tells us from the very beginning? From the very outset, it tells us this. It says, actually, we don't know what the kingdom of heaven is like. We have no clue. We actually need God to reveal to us, to bring a revelation that we might understand the kingdom of heaven. It's that Jesus comes down, he says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Unless he does that, we have no clue. We have no idea what it is about. We need a revelation from God. And so Jesus comes down, he says, for the kingdom of heaven is like. 
And it's almost as if Jesus is saying to us, he's saying the kingdom of heaven is not like anything that you might imagine. And we need to reorient our thinking to make sense of the kingdom of heaven. And when we look at Matthew's presentation of this parable, we notice that he actually frames this parable within the same repeated phrase. It uh, actually occurs in the last verse of chapter 19, verse 30, right before our reading today. And it appears also at the end of, verse, uh, end of chapter 20, verse 16. And he says basically the same thing. At the end of chapter 19, he says, But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And then at the end of the parable, he reverses it. And he says, So the last will be first, and the first will be last. And so what he's doing is he's framing the parable. This is what's called an inclusio, which basically frames the parable. It's as if Jesus is saying, he's coming in his preaching and he's saying to you guys, I've got a big key idea that I want to tell you this morning. You know what that idea is? The first will be last and the last will be first. It's like, does that make sense? And they're like, mm, I'm not sure, Jesus. <laughs> I don't quite understand this. I'm struggling with this, with this one a bit, Jesus. And so what Jesus does is, okay, I'll tell you this parable. And this parable is going to make sense of this truth. So however we understand the parable, it must make sense of this truth that the first will be last and the last will be first. And so he begins with the parable in verses 1 and 2. And he begins with these words and he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and he sent them into his vineyard. You know, there's nothing really unusual here would have been actually pretty common practice in Jesus' day for a landowner to go out to the marketplace and to find workers for his vineyard. Very normal practice. Would have also been normal to, um, to, to put them to hire throughout the day. It would have been normal to pay them a denarius's day and a denarius for the day's work. It would have been pretty normal practice. But you know, there's one thing that Jesus says in this parable that would have just absolutely captured their attention and their ears would have just pricked up when he said this you know what it is it's the vineyard when he mentions the word vineyard the people knew that he was talking about them and it was personal go with me to isaiah chapter 5 which is about in the middle of your bibles if you have them or you can use your your apps to get straight to it but in isaiah chapter 5 the prophet isaiah sings a beautiful song about the Lord's vineyard. It's a very famous um, prophecy. Let me just read a few verses from it. Isaiah chapter 5, starting in verse 1. This is what Isaiah says. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and he cleared it of stones and he planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it, and he cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. So he's singing a song about his vineyard. But his vineyard, it's not just a, a, a place. It's actually a nation. It's actually a group of people. And we see that in verse 7, when he says very clearly, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines that he delighted in. So you see, when Jesus says the word 
vineyard, when we, when we read it, we just think, you know, down in Margaret River, you know, a vineyard, nothing special. But when they hear the word vineyard, they know that he's talking about them and it's personal. For you and I, it'd be a bit like, you know, if you picked up a, a history book from the library and it said something like this among the texts, it said, now there once was an island nation that took up battle lines on the shores of Gallipoli. And if you heard that and you read that, you, you would know that it's personal. It's about us. It's about who we are as a nation. And I think that's what happens when Jesus introduces his parable this way. They're just, they're really listening attentively to what he's going to say. And so having captured their attention, he goes on to tell them this parable. And in the parable, as we look through the first eight verses or so, we see that the landowner goes to the marketplace five times. He goes really early at six in the morning. He goes again at nine. He goes at 12. He goes at three. And he goes at five. And each time he goes, he finds workers and he takes them to put them to work in his vineyard. Now, if you look closely, you would notice that he only agrees to pay those who were, worked, who were picked up for work at six o'clock the full denarius for the day's work. To the rest, he either agrees to pay them whatever is right or he doesn't tell them. So we can see that Jesus is setting them up for an unexpected change in this parable. And then we come to verse 9, and this is when it starts to get really interesting, if you follow along with the text. Verse 9, it says, The workers who are hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So these are the guys that we would normally call the 11th hour workers. Now they start at 5 p.m., and they only work for one hour, but they get the full day's pay. And the natural response, and you can see that what, what Jesus is doing, he's setting them up for this expectation. The natural response to this is that those who worked longer through the day are going to get paid more, right? And that just seems fair. It just seems just. It seems reasonable. I mean, think about it for a moment. If I was going to work, say, 10 hours this week, and... I would expect to get paid for my 10 hours worked. But what if my friend who sits next to me in the office, what if he worked for 40 hours this week and he did the same job, the same position, the same title, the same stuff as me, does he deserve to get the same pay? Does he deserve to get 10 hours wages? No, that would be unfair. That would be unjust. It wouldn't be right. Now, surely a God who is completely fair and completely just and completely righteous, surely he's going to do what is right. I mean, he said back in verse 4 that he would pay them whatever is right. So we anticipate that this landowner is going to do what is right. But then we come to verse 10. And this is where Jesus just changes the whole thing on his head. Verse 10, so when those came who were hired first... They expected to, to receive more. Reasonable. But each one of them also received a denarius. You see, they actually got the same pay as the guys that only worked for one hour. And you can see them, you just imagine them getting hot under the collar, right? I mean, seriously, Jesus? I mean, really? You're just giving, them, you're just giving us the same amount of pay as those guys that have worked one hour? Don't you know that we've worked throughout the heat of the day? We've borne the burden of the work and you can just give us the same? I mean, this is not fair. Give me the number for the workers' union. I'm going to complain right away. It's just not fair. It's not just. This is ridiculous. 
You can just imagine them getting hot under the collar. And then in verse 12, we read the actual root cause of their complaint. When he says in verse 12, that their complaint is that you have made them equal to us. It's not just about pay. It's actually you've made them equal. Don't you know who we are? We're the ones that have worked hard throughout the day, but you've made them equal to us. And it's, not just, it's just not fair. Well, what's the landowner's response? Well, we see in verse 13 that the landowner says very clearly, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Notice how he calls him friend. We actually think that's a positive um, word to use and it would normally seem quite positive, right? But it's actually quite ironic. You know, this word for friend here is only used three times in the whole Bible. It's always used by Matthew and it's always used in an ironic way. And every time he uses it, he goes on to rebuke the person that he says that he calls friend. In Matthew 22, when there's the uh, parable of the wedding banquet, there's one guy there who's not wearing the wedding clothes. And he calls him friend, and then he throws him outside into the darkness. What about uh, Matthew 26, when Judas comes with the, with the crowd to arrest Jesus, and he arrests Jesus, he gives him a kiss, and what does Jesus say? Come to do what you did, come to do what you planned, friend. So it's used in an ironic way, and that's exactly what happens in this verse. He says, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? And now here comes the rebuke in verse 14. Just take your pay and go. I want to give the one who is hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do with what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Are you envious because I am generous? Wow, surely that's a bit rich. I mean, come on, that's just, it's not fair, right? I mean, you're supposed to be the God who is fair and loves justice. I mean, where's the justice and the righteousness in this law? But that's pretty much the end of the parable. And we're left with all these questions in our mind and we, we think it's just not fair, it's not right, there's no justice. And yet Jesus just leaves the parable hanging. He doesn't explain it, he just leaves us there in our confusion. And we're left to wonder what to do with this parable. as we try to understand this parable, I think it's actually very important for us to ask a different type of question. The question is not so much, what is the, what is the parable actually saying? But it is, what does it really mean? And how are we reading and interpreting this parable? You see, there's an important word in theology, it's called hermeneutics. It's a big word, but it has a very simple meaning, and it simply means the way that we understand or interpret things. And so the, the task of biblical hermeneutics is to understand, is, is the task of understanding and interpreting Scripture. So it simply means how we read and how we interpret Scripture. And you might want to say to me, well, the reality is that I just read Scripture and I try to do what it says. I just try to apply it to my life. I mean, it's pretty straightforward, right? I just read it and I apply it to my life. But the reality is, friends, that all of us, when it comes to reading Scripture and making sense of it, we all bring baggage with us. We do, whether we can recognize it or not. We all bring experiences and teachings of how to read Scripture to it. 
we all bring our culture and our life experiences to Scripture, and we never read Scripture as a plain and open book. And I want to suggest to you this morning that sometimes we read Scripture through the wrong lens. We read it with the wrong hermeneutic. And I would suggest that the hermeneutic that we tend to read Scripture through is the one that I've called the me hermeneutic. It's the one that says Scripture is all about me. The one that says Jesus is speaking directly to me. And not just that, he's actually, he's speaking to Christians. Uh, Not just that, he's speaking to 21st century Christians. Actually, he's speaking to 21st century Western Christians that live in Fremantle. He's speaking to people like you and me, right? And so we read this text and we apply it directly to our lives. And if we do it that way, we might come up with some interesting interpretation. But it may not be the right interpretation. I would suggest that when we go back to the original context of this passage, we get a very different picture. When we look at the original context, what do we see? Well, we, who's the author of this book? The author is Matthew. Okay, Matthew is an apostle. He's a Jew. He was a tax collector, so he's considered one of the lowest in society. He's a tax collector and he's a Jew. And who's he writing to? Well, most scholars would say that Matthew is writing to Jews, okay? Well, who's he writing about? Well, he's writing about Jesus, and Jesus was a Jew, right? In fact, Matthew starts his gospel with the words, he was, uh, Jesus is the son of Abraham and the son of David. He was a Jew of Jews. And in this passage, who is Jesus talking to? Well, he's talking to Jews. He's only talking to Jews. So when we look at this passage, we say, it's written by a Jew, he's writing to Jews, he's writing about a Jew who's speaking to Jews. So you might say, it's a very Jewish passage. And the truth is, you'd be right. It's very Jewish. And the context. And our job, as we interpret this passage, is not to think that Jesus is speaking directly to my life. It's to understand the context in which he is speaking to, understand the people he's speaking to, Take the principle out of that. And then when we understand the principle, then we can make the quantum leap and bring that principle into the 21st century and say, what does that principle look like in our lives? You know, another very interesting thing you might not have heard about with this parable is that this is a parable that the Jews would have heard before, just in a slightly different way. And I didn't know this until I studied it in preparation for this sermon either. But as I've looked into this, I've found it incredible, the similarities with a parable that they already knew and how Jesus uses it. It comes from the Jewish Talmud, which is uh, Jewish writings and teachings. And this is a parable that would have been an oral tradition at the time of Jesus, and it got written down in the third century. Have a listen to this parable and see how similar it is to the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Let me just read it for you. This is how the parable goes in the Talmud. The situation was like that of a king who had hired a great number of laborers. But two hours after the work began, the king expected, inspected the laborers. He saw that one of them surpassed the others in industry and skill. And so he took him by the hand and he walked up and down with him till the evening. In other words, one guy worked for two hours and he got, then he got to spend the rest of the day with the king. 
not doing any work, just having fun with the king. And he goes on. When the laborers came to receive their wages, each of them received the same amount as all the others. Well, that's similar, isn't it? Then they murmured and said, we have worked the whole day and this man only two hours, yet you have paid him the full day's wages. And the king replied, I have not wronged you. This laborer has done more in the two hours than you have done the whole day. It's very interesting, isn't it? So now that we know that the people in Jesus' day would have been aware of this parable that I've just read to you, what I find incredible is how Jesus takes that parable and he changes it. He changes something that they know to bring a new teaching, to reorient their thinking. It's like he's saying, you've heard that this is the way that it works. And now let me tell you how the kingdom of heaven really works. You know, Jesus does that quite regularly. In you know, Matthew chapter 5, on the Sermon on the Mount, he says things like, you've heard that it was said, and now I tell you. And now I tell you. He takes what they know, and he gives it a new, deeper understanding to teach them the truth about the kingdom of heaven. And when we look at these two parables, we see that the way that Jesus works it out is it very much contrasts work and grace. We see this not really about how much you work, everyone actually receives the same amount. So you might say, in the kingdom of heaven, it doesn't matter how much you work, it's all about God's grace, right? And we can preach that, and that's a great sermon, and that's a true message, I don't actually think that's what's really going on here in this passage. That's definitely there, don't get me wrong. It's definitely about works and grace. But I think there's actually something even more fundamental going on, even deeper. See, I believe that fundamentally Jesus is challenging the way that we value people. You see, the truth is that we value, so do they. We value people based on their, their social status, based on their title, based on their wealth, based on whether they are first or last in society. We value people that way, right? What Jesus is saying is that the kingdom of heaven doesn't value people the same way that we do. And we need to reorient our thinking to understand it. See, when we keep looking at the context, the original context, we see that the Jewish society was extremely hierarchical. See, it's all about the social status that you had. It's all about where you were in society, how much money and power that you had. And in the Jewish society of Jesus' day, there were essentially two classes of people. You know what they were called? They were called the first and the last. And there really was no middle ground. It was either you're among the elite or you're among the lower class, the first and the last. Well, who were the first? Well, they were the high priests the council of 72 elders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, the scribes, the leaders, you know, the wealthy, the well-to-do, they were all in the first class of society. And those in the last, well, they were the tax collectors, the sinners, the lame, the sick, the poor, the disabled, and even the peasants. And that's how the society was separated, the first and the last. And what Jesus is really trying to get them to understand is the kingdom of heaven doesn't work that way. It doesn't work where there is a first and the last. You are actually equal in the kingdom of heaven. That there are no rankings in the kingdom of heaven. 
He's saying the kingdom of heaven is not based on your merits or how much work you do or how hard you work. It's not based upon your skill or your intelligence or your title or your power or your status. It's not based on the family that you were born into, the class that you were born into. He's saying, you know what the kingdom of heaven is based upon? In the kingdom of heaven, it doesn't matter whether you are first or whether you are last. He says he welcomes all into the kingdom of heaven by faith. And the kingdom of heaven is a place where the poor, the lame, the sick, and the disabled, they are welcomed alongside Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are equal in the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't matter if you're first or you're last in this life. We take up the same position in the kingdom of heaven. Now, that sounds great. I mean, that's a wonderful message of grace. We don't get what we deserve. We all get a great place in the kingdom of heaven. It's a great message, right? I mean, who's going to have a problem with this? I mean, who's going to argue with this? Who's going to complain about this? Well, the reality is that many people might complain. Pharisees might complain. I mean, they had immense authority over the people. And they'd made the people believe that to be pleasing to God, you had to follow them. So they might complain. Well, the Jews might complain. I mean, they've been following the law for two millennia. And now, by the time Matthew's writing, we see the Gentiles are coming into the church and they don't have to follow the law. Get this free ride. So they might complain. The disciples, well, they might complain as well. Because at the beginning, they were being persecuted for their faith. And now the very Jews that were persecuting them are coming into the kingdom. Let's just say it's not fair. Even the long-standing people in Matthew's church, well, they might complain as well. You know what it's like. I mean, we've slaved over this church. We've been here through the thick and the tough times when it's been difficult, when there's only been 10 people in the pews. We've been here through the whole, the, those, all those difficult times. And now all these young guys are coming into our church and they're wanting to do it their way. So they might complain as well. And the truth of the matter, if we're going to be honest with ourselves... And I think we need to, is that you and I might complain as well. We might. And do you know why we might complain? You know why most people find this parable offensive and difficult to understand? The reason is because most of us put ourselves into the place of the people who have been working all day. We put ourselves in the position of those who were hired at six o'clock and we deserve the work. We deserve the pay for what we've done, right? And when we read it that way, we find it offensive. I mean, it's fair enough, right? I mean, most of us have been in church all our lives. You know, we've been here, uh, you know, we've been here through those difficult times. We've dil diligently given our offerings. We've served in the Sunday school. We've done the hard yards. I mean, we deserve to be among those who are first, right? We deserve to be rewarded. Now, we are entitled to it. And it's just not fair that these new kids come in and get treated the same as us. And so the truth is that you and I might complain as well. But I want to suggest to you this morning that it's actually all about perspective. And if we change the way that we read this parable, we'd have a very different impression of this parable. And I don't think we'd find it offensive at all. 
So what I'd like to do just for the next few moments is I'd like to read you something. It's based on this parable, but it's from a different perspective. And if you don't mind, I'd like you to just close your eyes just for a couple of minutes and just focus on these words that I'm going to read. We'll see how you respond to it. Imagine for just a moment that you are a Jew living in Israel at the time of Jesus. There's not a lot of paid work going around. And so you wake up real early and you go to the marketplace at six o'clock, hoping for work, knowing that you will need a full day's wage, knowing that someone in your family is counting on you to bring home a denarius. But you aren't chosen at six or again at nine. Maybe you are smaller, maybe you are older, maybe you aren't in good shape, maybe you're pregnant. Something about you makes you seem weaker or slower than the first group. You're one of those who we might say you are last in society. And as the day wears on, you aren't picked at noon or even at three in the afternoon, but you still need a full day's wage. Just imagine that you are the one who has waited in vain throughout the whole day, knowing that you are desperate and needy. Imagine the relief of being put to work at 5 p.m. You don't ask what your earnings will be. You are desperate and you are trusting and glad that the day will not be entirely wasted. Even one-twelfth of the full day's wage will help. You can at least take that home to prove that you care for those who are counting on you. And then imagine lining up to obtain your pay, not expecting much, but to your great surprise, you receive a full day's wage instead of the one hour of pay that you expected. Just imagine the extravagance of that act. A full day's wage. Imagine how heavy it feels in your hand. Imagine how immensely thankful you are for a master who does not play by the rules, but whose generosity overflows. You can open your eyes now. When we read this parable this way, we get a very different perspective, don't we? We read it from the perspective of the 11th hour workers. Those who only work, hour, work for one hour, it no longer seems unfair, no longer seems unjust. In fact, rather we recognize the overflowing generosity and grace of our God. Friends, I think we need to recognize something, is that none of us actually deserve anything from God. No matter what position we have in life, whether we are first or we are last, or we're somewhere in between, we don't actually deserve anything, but our God is generous. He's overflowing with grace and he accepts all who come into his kingdom by faith, whether you are first or whether you are last. So friends, I believe that's what Jesus is trying to say from this parable. And now the task for us is now, once we understand that, let's apply that to our lives. Let's apply that principle to the 21st century. And I want to say, as a church, You've gone through a lot of change in the last few years and we've been blessed as Subi Church to be part of that change and to be supporting you through that. But we can see that your church is now growing and more and more people are coming into this church. And so I want to ask you this morning, is what sort of church do you want to be? Who do you want to accept into this church? Do you only want to accept people that look like you? that have the same kind of social standing as you, who enjoy the same things as you? Is that, is that the sort of church you want to be? 
there's plenty of churches like that around. Or do you want to be a church that accepts all people like God does, regardless of what they look like, whether they are first or last, whether they are healthy or sick? Do you want to be the type of church that accepts all people, that is a representation of the kingdom of heaven? You know what I'd love for our churches to be, all churches really, is that the width of our doors, the width of our doors, are no narrower than the gates of heaven. So whoever God accepts into his kingdom, that we would accept into our church. Is that the sort of church that you want to be? So I think we need to recognize and remember something. No matter what we look like, every person is made in the image of God. And every person is loved by God and God wants none to perish and all to come into his kingdom. And the truth is that all of us have fallen short of his glory. And all of us are only justified by his grace and the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male or female because we are all what? We are all one in Christ. We are accepted into the kingdom based upon our faith. So I believe that is what Jesus is teaching us this morning. But I do have one last question to ask, and I will close with this question. We've seen this morning that um, God does not value people the same way that we do in the kingdom. But I want to ask this morning, just as I close, what does God really value? What does God really value from his people? And I think to answer that, it's twofold. The first one is we look at Jesus Christ. You say, who is Jesus? Well, he was the king of all kings. You would say he was first. He was supreme. He was the first, the first over all creation, the firstborn over all creation. And even though he was king of kings, he came down to this world as a servant to serve, not to be served, but to serve. And he made himself a slave to be served, to serve. That is who Jesus is as the king. And so we can see that to, to serve God is of great value to the Lord. And secondly, is to serve God with a whole heart. You know, we think uh, back in the Old Testament, there's a great story that reminds us what God is truly looking for from, from us, his people. It's back in the book of 1 Samuel when we've had King Saul as the king and he didn't do a particularly good job. And so uh, the Lord is going to anoint another king. And so he tells Samuel the prophet, I'm going to anoint another king. And what I want you to do, Samuel, is bring all the sons of Jesse before the Lord. And I will anoint one of them to be the king. Right? And so Jesse goes and gets his sons and he brings them before the Lord. And uh, they're all there except for David, who's out in the fields. Right? And we'll get to him in a moment. And he has the firstborn, his name is Eliab, come before, Sam, come before Samuel. And this guy looks like the king type, right? You know, he looks like you know, Chris Hemsworth or something like that, you know, Thor. He looks like he should be king, right? And he comes before the Lord. And what does the Lord say? What are the words that the Lord says to him? Because in his heart, Samuel has thought, surely this guy is the king. And what does the Lord say? He says, do not consider his outward appearance or his height because I have rejected him. 
And he goes on to say these very important words. He says, because the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And we know the rest of the story is that David is eventually brought in front of Samuel and is anointed king. And you know, you might say, if you look at that story, a good summary would be, the first will be last, and the last would be first. Hope you can see this morning that, that the kingdom of heaven is different to the way that we value people. God doesn't care if we are first or last in this world. He accepts all people who come to him in faith. And there are no rankings in the kingdom of heaven. So I want to say to you this morning, let us remember that no matter who walks through these doors of this church, let us accept them into this church just as God accepts them into this kingdom. And let us try to do the things that are pleasing to God. And what are those things? That we might serve God with a whole heart. And as we do those things, we will be pleasing to our Heavenly Father. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this parable this morning, even though it is a somewhat confusing parable and many people have found it, found it offensive over the years. But we thank you that this parable really does teach us what you value. And it shows us that you do, not value the, you do not value people the way that we tend to value them. And Father, we thank you that that is the truth, that we might be accepted into the kingdom by faith. And Lord, I pray for this church. Lord, I pray that this church would be a true representation of the kingdom of heaven. And this church would welcome people based solely upon their faith. Thank you, Lord, for this time this morning. We pray that you would bless us and lead us as we apply this to our lives. In Christ's name, amen.